Dr. Mokul, did you ever uh, notice that the coffee kind of tastes like peppermint now? I hadn't noticed that, Dr. Hallowell, but now that you mention it, it does kind of taste like peppermint. What is up with that? That's so weird. Hey, good morning there, Dr. Mokul. Dr. Hollowell. Oh, Dr. Oh. Olander, good to see you. Dr. Olander? Yeah. Dr. Mokul? Yeah. Oh, Dr. Hollowell, good to see you. Good to see you. Hey, did you two hear about that new hire, the orderly? Oh, buddy? Yeah, yeah, him. I guess that's his name. I wasn't sure if that was actually his name or if people were just really friendly with him. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I hear he's from the North Pole. That's wild. North Pole. Yeah, that's wild. You know, that does explain a few things. Like, the other day, there were so many garlands hanging around the office, I couldn't even find my desk. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually saw those. And when I was doing surgery the other day, I reached for my scalpel and I I couldn't believe it. It was wrapped in wrapping paper. It huh. That's weird. You know, now that you mention it... I was supposed to run a clinical trial today, and somebody had eaten all of my sugar pills. At least he's nice. <laughs> well, anyway, he's great, you know? Yeah, really nice guy. He always puts a smile on my face. He did say that thing about Christmas cheer any time of the year, right? Christmas cheer any time of the year. <laughs> well, anyway, about this coffee, um... Is there syrup in this? So hey, I hey, does, any, does anyone know how to end this bit? fantasy fans and welcome to swords and satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mokul here with my merry co-hosts i'm chelsea hollowell a clay figure living in an impossible realm that's sad to see their best friend go oh that's so sad <laughs> and i'm jack oland and uh, who am I? It's none of your business. Get out of here. Forget about it. Oh, he's a New Yorker. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this week we have a pretty different movie to talk about than last week, even though they are both ostensibly Christmas themed, because we watched 2003's Elf. Uh, this is a movie directed by John Favreau and written by David Berenbaum. It stars Will Ferrell, James Can, Bob Newhart, Zoe Deschanel, and Ed Asner. But before we get too deep into talking about this whimsical little <laughs> uh, Christmas treat, uh, Chelsea probably has a professionally prepared <laughs> summary ready for everyone. Oh, yeah. Super professional. Here's your summary for Elf. So This I is just, a movie about, like, Tolkien-esque elves, right? Like, archers that live in the forest, love trees, and, like, do magic and stuff? No. 
Damn. Not that kind of elf. Why didn't we watch this movie then? This movie is probably <laughs> racist to elves, I would assume. Hmm. But um, I was going to say, so I was going to frame this movie in one way that I was expecting to do that was a little probably unkind to the film, but is what I interpreted the film to like really be saying. Okay, let's hear it. Like kind of like I did last week, but I thought about it a little bit more after we watched the film and realized, no, this is actually... I get where they were going with this movie, and it actually did work with this one. So I'm going to give you a more favorable <laughs> summary for this one. So unlike Santa, you are a kind god. Exactly. I'm more... I'm not... I wouldn't... Okay. I wouldn't call myself a god. <laughs> that, that's weird. <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> I would, per, I would so I'm never sleep. Comfortable being called an elf or an imp or something like that. I think um, a kind imp is better. Okay, so this is a movie about a belated coming of age story of a pure and innocent soul who's too good for this world. Oh, that's very sweet. And. It's about Buddy who travels to New York to to his, connect to connect with his uh, biological father, having grown up as an adopted son of an elf in the North Pole. Like you do. So this is another movie that treats the mythological figures as real, and it actually works for this film as opposed to the Polar Express that we watched last week. Much less creepy Santa in this movie. Yeah, and we'll get into that. But just to kind of preempt that for you all here. And he ends up creating this great relationship with his father and his father's other family. And there's some strife between all of them as they're learning to get to know one another and getting used to one another. But it's all kind of wrapped up neatly for us in the end. And we get to have our, our good feelies. <laughs> our feelies uh heartwarming section and oh wait um, my heart does feel warm is that should i see a doctor um maybe and buddy helps to rekindle the christmas spirit and save christmas with the help of his new friends that he and family that he makes in new york and uh, we can get into the details about all that in the next section sounds good to me why don't we head to the delve Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Elf. So guys, what's the deal with belief? We've got a movie here where we kind of follow this theme of the power of believing in something. Buddy, of course, believes in Santa because he knows him personally and has witnessed the magic of flying reindeer sleighs and knows what's going on in the North Pole and everything where actual literal elves manufacture toys to bring across 
the world to children. And, uh, you know, we also have the idea of the clausometer, which is Santa's magical ability to fly his sleigh based on how much people believe on it, uh, believe in him. My mind imagined a Santa that exists based on belief, like, like American God sort of God. And that kind of is of, what it is, right? With the clausometer. Yes. And instead of uh, Santa actually bringing the gifts, he just uses his horrible influence to push people toward generosity and giving. Oh, God. And someone sees Santa's true form and his beard is massive and spreads out over the world into little wisps of hair that go into the back of people's heads. And the second it threads into their brain, they're like, you know, I should get my son a present. <laughs> Terrifying. So is that spreading goodwill or is that spreading capitalism? Yes. Yes. Is that the mechanism by which capitalism spreads? It's actually Santa's beard growing tendrils into all of our brains. Oh, like the uh, the parasites and cat poop that like make you love cats. Mm-hmm. Is it toxoplasmosis? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. My perception of capitalism is that it would inspire you to take something from a loved one. <laughs> to rob your loved ones? Yes. It's more like you get a gift from a loved one, then resell it to somebody else to create a profit off of that gift. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Love? That could get me a pretty penny. So kind of what we see in this movie, and it highlights what we get from a lot of media about, like, Christmas in particular, out of all the December holidays, is what I'm talking about, is that this idea of the spirit of Christmas and giving is it, in our culture is closely tied with capitalism. And capitalism, capitalist, what's that? <laughs> capitalist ideals about like stimulating the economy and consumerism oh is that why the elves are making like monopoly the most painful game ever in existence yeah they are making tons of monopoly and etch-a-sketches they're making all of it in santa's workshop but then we see it later in new york in the toy store hmm. and people are buying it there very suspicious hasbro <laughs> Is Hasbro using elf labor? That's probably unethical. And the elves seem like, you know, they're unpaid. They just all live and work in the North Pole. But they're paid in um, pride in their work. They all seem very content with their jobs. The payment is the job. They That's get horrifying. to have something to do with their time. Ooh, I do not like the... Well, I don't like what I'm hearing That's here. That's the implication from the movie. And it's like... It is kind of like the Polar Express, where it's like this labor camp, but it's more disguised because it does have that cozy, heartwarming feel to it because it is the traditional, like, Scandinavian architecture, 
and like wood cottages and like a wooden workshop, a toy maker's workshop, not a factory town. Yeah, actually. So, so I it's was actually maybe a little bit more insidious that way. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I was doing a little bit of research into this and so much of that scene is literally taken from or inspired by Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, yes. the old animation. I believe that's true. I even read that the elf costumes are recreations of the exact costumes from the Rudolph film. They are. Clay claymation film. Yeah. And there's a lot of the claymation figures from that film as claymation figures in this yeah. movie. Which is kind of great, actually. Yeah, that's, that's that part's fun. really fun. It's pretty cool. And it's actually stop-motion claymation that they did for the film. So that as an artistic or aesthetic uh, quality is really appealing and it's it creates these comedic moments because Will Ferrell is responding to these characters and stuff like that. Yes. Like Mr. Narwhal. Yeah. Exactly. I feel that maybe these elves are somewhat Tolkien-esque. And let me explain. Okay, I'm I'm waiting with bated breath to hear this explanation. You see. The elves in this film, based on their behaviors, are either culturally or, and I, I hope it's not this one, but racially more biased toward caring for others rather than themselves. When Buddy is going through an identity crisis, everyone is eager and excited to help him find his self-worth, and they live to give presents to humans without pay other than their job, right? and. You know, a species like that might not become very dominating. You know what I'm saying? They'll probably stay pretty small because, you know, they're not a super ambitious group other than they make all these toys. But who inspires yeah, the elves but a human? And this is where Tolkien-esque comes in. Us humans, we've taken over the world. We're explorers. We have goals that are, you know, selfish, but, you know, they can be good natured. But, you know, we have ambition and that's our drive. And that's what puts us above the elves. And that's why Santa is in charge because they're they want to give and Santa wants to give. And he has the ambition to come up with this grand scheme oh, to yeah? put their good hearts to work. I mean, I, to everyone in the world. I'm not sure that the elves of Middle Earth are really defined by their altruism, though. No, but the humans are defined by their ambition. Sure. The elves yes. are kind of just aloof, magical beings. I mean, that's Buddy. Buddy's more concerned with making people happy and eating candy than he is with any kind of like drive to do something for any kind of personal gain. Like they literally say in the movie that Buddy's core drive, the only thing he cares about is making Walter and then like by extension, his family and everybody he meets happy. Yeah, that is all he wants to do is to make others happy and to spread Christmas cheer. Well, we're getting into it now. I really want to talk about Buddy. Well, you of... we picked a good movie to talk about him then. <laughs> Break him down as a character. Break him down as a human. <laughs> no, 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 not that way. In the, in the fun, analytical way. Right. To finish off the Tolkien part and segue perfectly into that. Okay. Ironically, Buddy is very tall 
and he fits as a as a hobbit based on that description. I think. You mean the elves? Very... You mean the elves are hobbits? No, just buddy. How, how does being very tall make him a hobbit? Oh no, he wants to spread joy, and he's always happy, and he eats a lot, and he's very oh, he cares wow. about friendship. That's true. And he likes adventure. That fits. He has the spirit of a hobbit. Exactly. Like anyway, a like a yes. baggins, not so, like a regular hobbit, right? Like a little bit more adventurous. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, Buddy brings up a lot of questions. For me, because he is an innocent and pure soul, like I mentioned in the intro or the summary. But I want to understand why the character has those qualities, because the way it is portrayed is very childlike. Yes. And I want us to try to figure out if we can what they were trying to do with that, with like the writer, director, all the all the creative direction of this film what were they going for with this character why is he so childlike because it's not in my opinion just that he grew up on the north pole with the elves and that he doesn't understand our culture that's part of it but he's not approaching our culture as an adult of his age not even as an elven adult because the elves have children in this movie, in the North Pole, and they go to elf school, <laughs> and there are the adult elves that work in the workshop, and they have more adult personalities. They're just elves, and they have their own culture there. But Buddy did not develop an adult personality. I was going to say, this is something that Chelsea brought up in watching the movie, that the elf, the elven adults act like human adults for the most part. Like, right, they just have the, as, as in like the coding of the characters in film, and like they're they have jobs and like more mature uh, emotional lives and stuff. And, and their approach to work is, is more responsible as an adult would approach it. Yes, definitely. But that's another thing, right? Papa Elf, Buddy's dad. We hear that he did not make head engineer or whatever his position is as santa's sleigh repairman until he was 490 years old right so that just puts into perspective some elven lifespan right okay and maturity and when buddy is already seemingly an adult he's still going to those elven classes with elf children right right so maybe in elf culture, even though as a human he's biologically a matured person, right? He They've still maybe treated him like a kid his entire life because elf children age more slowly than human children. That would make sense if they weren't trying to have him working in the adult jobs at the toy factory. But he is ostensibly working the same jobs as the adult elves. And we don't see anybody else from his classroom that we get to see in that scene in the fact in the workshop. Yeah, it's not like a child labor camp, thankfully. Mercifully. I could see how if he was constantly grouped with the children, he might still retain some childlike qualities, but to completely have not developed an adult personality at all is strange unless 
he's uh, intentionally meant to be a neurodiverse character, which I thought of, and I, it it's possible. Uh, this is from 2003, so the father did mention at one point, like, you obviously have a chemical imbalance, but I love you and I want us to be a family, you know? And so it's it's kind of a joke, but I think that it's acknowledged by the other characters that he's developmentally speaking a child and or more childlike at least and they treat him that way and most of the characters treat him with kindness like they would a child that's nice it, that i'm i'm and cool I, with the way that most people treat him i mean even walter yes. who's a, kind of like a scrooge kind of a scrooge yeah but like he 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 snaps right like he, in the in the scene where buddy gets into a fight with miles finch the the writer that they bring in played by peter dinklage he gets mad, but he gets mad at Buddy the way that one might get angry at their child, child. who is you know, acting out or yeah. does something, you know, out of line or that would, you know, hurt somebody's, you know, work or whatever. But he's not being mean about Buddy having a different, you know, mental state or being neurodiverse. He's mad because Buddy really did fuck something up for him. Yeah, and the whole time, like, he's so focused on work, he's kind of short-tempered or kind of strict or just doesn't have a lot of patience for Buddy's antics, so to speak. But even through all that, he's still pretty kind to Buddy. He's not treating him as he would an adult. He is relating to him the entire time as... He might a child in that he's relating to him at the level that I think he understands that Buddy is able to process. Yeah, I mean, Walter goes through an arc. At first, he actually thinks that Buddy is somebody trying to scam him. Did we mention that Walter is Buddy's biological father? I don't know if we named him, but that that's what who we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, James can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, at first, he believes that Buddy is actually just another probably American person trying to scam him by saying, oh, I'm your biological son. He thinks he's trying to get money out of him through getting to know Buddy and learning to trust him and then also having a biology test to prove that he's actually his son. Then he changes his perspective and he does treat him more like he treats Michael, his teenage biological son. You know, son. You're, what, uh, you're right, because in the beginning, the way he's interacting with him is a little bit more brusque, like he's talking to another adult, and then he does shift. You're yeah. right. He changes his his way of speaking, and like again, he might get mad at Buddy for when Buddy screws up, but he's not treating him in a disrespectful way. He's right. not like being judgy towards him the way that neurodiverse characters and real life people might be treated culturally in our society and, right. and in a lot of media and stuff they talk to him at the level that buddy seems to be at and they right. the, the expectations for buddy seem to match what they believe are his cognitive abilities right yeah that's true that could be the case also i just want to say real quick i don't ever feel like people are looking down on him either they just are like this is the way he is and i uh they just kind of use it as a metric for the best way to interact with him. Yeah, it's true, which is a really healthy way to deal with something like that. Yeah, I felt like 
I actually really loved that about this movie. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite parts about it. It was surprisingly well handled for a movie from this time period. I know. Yeah, I think so as well. But I feel like the kind of most obvious answer is just that it it probably was intended on just being a cultural difference. Okay. And it, I, in my mind, it was kind of pitched like, ah, look how sweet and kind a human can really be. Like, there's sort like Buddy is kind of coded as like everyone should be more like this guy. I feel like we made a lot of comparisons to Enchanted because of the whimsical person from another magical land comes to modern day, New York specifically. And he's bringing the Christmas spirit to the cynical real world. And he doesn't, he didn't grow up, you're saying, with that cynicism. Exactly. Like, in a lot of ways, Buddy is very immature. And I think that's supposed to be like a cultural thing. Okay. And he's probably not supposed to be very bright. But, like, I think the movie codes him as being, like, superior culturally to Americans in a lot of ways. Yeah, in certain ways, at least. They show that there's a lot of ways that within this culture he might be lacking, but actually the whole point of the movie is, is that he has a lot of strengths as well and that people could learn from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear throughout the whole movie that Buddy is the aspirational character for how the filmmakers are saying people should try to be in terms of kind, uh, understanding, helpful. Like, Buddy believes that he is helping out with things, and he really, like, does. When he remodels the department store's lackluster Christmas display, people are in awe. He's creative and industrious and unafraid to just put it out there. Yeah. Like, his manager, or <laughs> I say his manager, the, <laughs> the the guy who is in charge of the Christmas <laughs> event at the Gimbel's department store. Where, but he just... Goes in and starts working when he's not even hired. Yeah, like, so so let's frame the scene. Like, Buddy shows up in Gimbal's. This guy's like, hey, you, like, you're an elf. You're part of the, our Christmas team. You got to come over here and get to work. Buddy's like, okay, yeah. Like, I like because Buddy is naturally helpful, he goes to work. And then this guy's very cynical. You know, he's kind of like, you know, he's keeping a schedule. He's like, I got to keep everything going and, and I'm in charge. He seems kind of... I don't say mean, but he's like very business oriented. Like he's got a job. He's supposed to keep all these people. He's the manager. He comes into right. work the next day when Buddy has redecorated and he is in awe of what Buddy has done with the department store. He's like looking at the light brights and just like disbelieving. Like he's touching it like and and like trying to see like did somebody really do all this work? And then he's a little suspicious because yeah. he thinks that somebody has like, come in to redecorate to try to steal their jobs. Yeah. But he's very much impressed with the work Buddy has done. He thinks the company hired outside help to decorate because they didn't trust them to do a good job or something. And so, yeah. But, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because that fits in with the the expectation of that character that 
businesses are always out to get you. But buddy is the counterpoint to that. Like right. a business might always be trying to fire you. That's that's the idea. Corporations are are always looking to cut costs and stuff. And that is the, the narrative that this character is reinforcing. Yeah. But we know that Buddy just did it because it's Christmas. It is meaningful to him to create a joyful environment everywhere he goes. And he doesn't and Buddy doesn't go around telling people like, oh yeah, I did this. It's this mystery. He doesn't need any recognition for it. Yeah. And it is definitely that Buddy does bring joy and light back into everybody's life that he interacts with. Almost. If if they're maybe not if Miles they're Finch. ready to receive that like almost childlike wisdom and that embodied kind of energy or element of of childhood into their lives they actually benefit from their interactions with him and their lives are better for having known him and so i i think that you guys are right it's like it's a cultural difference and it's supposed to be that he's almost like this avatar of childhood that everybody is kind of missing and that maybe socialized out of most people through their experience of going into adulthood and he's kind of reinvigorating people's lives by reminding them of all the good aspects of, of a childlike innocence and wonder about the world and about the holidays but it, it's it doesn't have to just be this is a christmas movie but it, it's something that can carry over to any time really I I, re I realize that I I really like this movie and I really like him as a character mm -hmm. because of all of the, these messages. Yes, there's only two people who we see him being unkind to in the film, right? The first one is himself. <laughs> okay, that's fair. When yeah yeah when he's not as productive as the elves, which seem to have a supernatural productivity, right? Yeah, they do. In like. Part of a work day, he's made 85 etch-a-sketches, right? Yeah. And the elf who he's reporting to is like, ah, that leaves you over 900 etch-a-sketches behind schedule, buddy. Implying that elves just make things at a ludicrous pace, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that just, in a lot of ways, makes buddy more relatable because i think a lot of people can relate to this idea of like feeling less productive or feeling like you're always comparing yourself to other people and even buddy is prone to these kind of like imposter syndrome feelings where he doesn't think he's good enough compared to the other people around him exactly and that's where we see him being mean he calls himself a cotton-headed ninny muggins which Terrible. the other elves exclaim like he just said something unspeakable. We might have to censor that for the North Pole audience, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't want to offend any of our North Pole listeners. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, and that's when people start to encourage him because, you know, he's being hard on himself. And that's not that's not nice, right? But Another person, the other person who he's kind of unkind to in the film is the person pretending to be Santa at the toy store. Okay, that's that's right. Because he's lying to the children, pretending to be Santa, and Buddy is 
astonished, right? He's irate because Santa is his close friend. And this yeah. person is pretending to be him for strangers. So he keeps telling him, like, you sit on a throne of lies. You don't smell like Santa. You smell like cheese. And maybe he's not <laughs> saying that to be hurtful. Maybe he's just saying that as, like, shocking evidence of his imposterhood. But Yeah, he also says, uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> he is not being mean. He is deeply offended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not even being unkind. Exactly. But, he, but he has a strong moral core. Yes, he does. But he also doesn't hold everybody to the same standard that he's at. Just, he doesn't like it when his good friend is being impersonated. Yeah, you know, I just want to say real quick that I think that both interpretations that we have shared in this episode of Buddy can be true at the same time or like just two valid readings of the character. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I do want to bring up one thing that Buddy's not a good role model about, and that is diet. Yeah. Yes, because, I was thinking it as well. Because Buddy eats a horrifying amount of sugar, so much so that the actor who plays him, Will Ferrell, was constantly getting sick on set because he was actually eating all that sugar no. and syrup and horrible food combinations like spaghetti with maple syrup and what was it like a bowl of cereal with pop tarts and something like that oh there were just some of these disgusting food scenes where he was pouring all this stuff onto spaghetti and like M&M's and then he was mashing it all together with his hands and then shoving it in his mouth. I couldn't watch. I was just yelling. I, I couldn't take it. I, I, could, I had to turn away. I hate I, I was hated closing it. my eyes too and I was actually feeling kind of nauseous while we were watching it. <laughs> I've watched yeah. I've watched some of the grimmest most brutal horror scenes in like recorded film history and I could not watch Will Ferrell stuffing maple syrup spaghetti into his mouth yeah yeah i was immediately like oh no that's an abomination but like i'd take one bite <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta try it right <laughs> Ooh, my stomach is hurting just talking about it and then once mm. he he was making the spaghetti it's kind of sweet actually because he the first night he got to go home with his um biological father walter and he met his uh family uh the wife his uh, walter's wife emily and his other son michael they had spaghetti for dinner all together and so he's like oh they love spaghetti so the next morning he got up before everybody and made them spaghetti for breakfast and lunch <laughs> and it just reinforces buddies kind giving spirit and it is kind of like childlike too but it is it was a benevolent gesture and the characters were being so kind to him i love how accepting and kind emily is i was him. gonna say she like instantly she is just like telling walter you need to be nice to this guy like he is your son he is family you need to treat him with respect she instantly accepts him even before she met him which so they're there we get a scene of uh walter and his wife emily talking together about this because he's warning her that 
there's this new person that's going to be coming into our lives. He, he's my son and everything. And so she's responding to this and she says, oh, that's amazing. We have to have him over. Of course, he's staying with us. Like she's instantly accepting of this other person. She's like, oh, this is so amazing. We'll have him in our lives. Like he's an important person and we should have him over and stuff. And I was just like, whoa, this is great. I love it. Emily, <laughs> Emily is a fucking saint. I know. And then that actress, um, I forget her name right now, but she typically plays a lot of characters like that. That's nice. What a good typecast. <laughs> um, Mary Steenbergen. But yeah, she was very, yeah, very kind and accepting. And it's very heartwarming. And it, it, it makes sense for a Chris, Christmas movie or a holiday movie. But um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Netflix Christmas universe movies where everybody is super nice to each other and conflicts don't really last very long and there's no real conflict arc or plot mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's kind of it kind of works anyway i mean it certainly creates a um a fun tone for these movies but also one that might be a little unrecognizable to people in the real world in, in certain situations. I know. You do have to be a little careful with it because it, if you get too swept up in that, you may not engage with the media in a, a more active way. Yeah. I mean, this movie certainly paints a very rosy picture of holiday spirit and kind of this comfortable benevolence and altruism that is difficult to um, find in the real world often. Yeah, and there's this whole undercurrent of class struggle that Jamie was bringing up while we were watching it. That sounds like something I would do. Yeah, and um, it would be easy to... It's there, it's all there, but it would be really kind of easy to overlook because of everything else that we've been talking about in the movie that kind of grabs your attention. Yeah, I, I don't want to let the movie go with just a um, completely positive spin without like being critical of things like this lionization of productivity, this celebration of kind of rampant consumerism and reinforcing. You know, so it's complicated, right? Because Buddy, as a character... I think reinforces some pretty good values about kindness and understanding and being a nice person. But I mean, the film also reinforces ideas about, about how people kind of slot into their work or whatever. And that is what's to be expected, like maintaining this status quo. I mean, the elves are probably the most egregious example of characters who are just so peppy and happy and just, Glad to be working and, and making toys for all the young boys and girls and all this. It's kind and, of like this capitalist utopia that, you know, people are just happier when they're working. And if they can be working all the time, then they'll have nothing to complain about. And they'll be that's like how you achieve happiness in your life. Yeah. And like there is this kind of pushing against that a little bit in the final scenes of the movie where Walter is in a meeting with his boss. Right. And he is supposed to be pitching this book because Walter works at a publishing house. 
um, to make up for this big screw up where he approved a book that didn't have an ending and it got printed and published and put out to the public and like all these kids books don't have the last pages because right. of Walter just not really caring about his job. But that idea that Walter is just kind of skating by, if he was a little bit more industrious, maybe this screw up wouldn't have happened. Right. But so he's supposed to work on Christmas Eve and the one act of rebellion that Walter is able to carry out kind of is telling his boss, I need to go look for my son. I'm going to do this. I don't care that you're going to fire me, but he's also rewarded it in the end because buddy becomes this kind of cash cow for him by making a book about his story. Right. And he starts his own publishing house and gets rich off of selling buddy's book. And so buddy's story is commodified. So it doesn't really go back on the capitalist ideals that are presented in the film. No, not at all. But also, like, Buddy's a good character for telling people to be nicer to each other. So that's, that's Those good. Those messages are, are, they're all in there. You awaken on a cold tile floor, unsure how you got here. As your eyes slowly creak open, you see bright red and green lights shining all around you. As you sit up, you find yourself surrounded by Christmas displays, toys, trains, holiday-themed garments, and realize that you've made your way into a department store. As you get up, you see light brights with letters glowing from them they read bounties this week swords and satire is sponsored in part by audible the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment and if you want a suggestion for a series to start your audible collection with might i suggest the iron druid chronicles by kevin hearn all three of the satirists love these audiobooks they're about a millennia's old druid named atticus o'sullivan who lives in tempe arizona and goes around solving people's problems gardening fighting gods and demons and basically doing all kinds of other stuff that you would think that a modern day druid would do these are really entertaining fantasy books with some interesting world building great lore really lovable characters and spoilers eventually there's a talking dog so why don't you go on over to audible right now and uh, check out the iron druid chronicles that's what we suggest but audible isn't just a great source of audiobooks oh no they have podcasts like ours comedy original content and more there's something on audible for everybody it's also super convenient you can download titles to your device so you can listen offline, which is really good for me because I'm often listening while working in the yard and my Wi-Fi sucks. And you can also listen across multiple devices without losing your place, which is also helpful for me because I have a bunch of different places I listen to Audible from. So head over to audibletrial.com swords right now to start your free 30-day trial Get a credit for a free audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you cancel your membership. Not that you're going to want to. You'll also get an exclusive wellness guide and an email reminder before your trial ends. And after that, it's just $14.95 a month. 
and you get a credit for an audiobook every month. When you sign up for your free trial, you also help us keep the torches lit at Castle Satire. So once again, that's audibletrial.com slash swords. And now, back to the episode. It also is another one of these movies that creates this weird reality where Santa really does deliver gifts to children all over the world, but then, like, also people are shopping to give gifts. So what are the gifts that Santa is giving, and what are the things that, like, your parents wrap up and put under the tree? I know. It's very confusing, but these like, these um activities or origins of these gifts in all of these movies is kind of nebulous. Sure, but I mean, how is it that people don't believe in Santa, but ostensibly, if Michael's parents gave him a skateboard and Santa was also bringing him a skateboard, there'd be two skateboards and the parents would be like, well, did you buy him one? And you bought him? I bought him one. I thought I was buying the skateboard. I, I You did. I didn't buy the skateboard. And it's, there's two. So how do people not believe in Santa in this reality where Santa is actually bringing gifts to people? Yeah, that's a little confusing. They never really cover that. Yeah, I don't see it in this movie, even though they kind of acknowledge how funny it is, the concept of parents giving gifts or filling stockings or eating cookies, right? But in several Christmas films I have seen where they kind of bring this up. Oh, they do? The parents are like, they look at the gifts that they did not buy for the kids. Like in Polar Express, it was the bell, right? And they're just like, huh, how odd. Must have been from Santa. Ha ha ha. As if, right? And then... But they literally know that it must be from Santa. (laughs) Yeah. And it was the same in The Night Before Christmas that we watched last year. Remember how that dog shows up? The little girl wants a dog, her niece. And then on Christmas Day, there's a dog in her stocking. And both the parents are like, we didn't buy it for her. And Vanessa's like, must have been Santa. Holy and everyone just shit. laughs like, like, oh, this crazy world we live in. Right? I forgot about that. So, mo- also, so movies pose a reality where mysterious presents show up in everybody's house every year, but also, like, we don't really believe in that whole Santa thing, right? It's mind-altering jolly magic. (laughs) You see, Santa wants... He doesn't want you to believe in him based on overwhelming evidence. He wants you to believe in him with blind, merry faith. That's what makes the sleigh fly. (laughs) I mean, that does go back to last week's horrifying eldritch terror that was the polar express you're giving me some interesting thoughts because that reminds me of christianity and protestantism and and some of the beliefs that are held where you don't need evidence to know that god exists you you just have to have that belief and that's part of like as a believer a christian is doing their part in the relationship between them and their god it's they have that faith um that their god exists and is is uh, has their best interests at heart or has a plan for them at least and that god's name is santa (laughs) 
And so this belief in Santa is based on your description, Jack, and I think you have something there. It's very similar to this like, Christian idea of God. Right. Well, I the mean, long it is white Satan. beard and the big red outfit and all mm-hmm. that. All, yeah. all very similar. Also, it's St. Nicholas, right? Yeah. It's based off a Catholic guy. Right. right. And people say it's a Christian holiday. Also, Santa does work as sort of a godlike figure for kids because he's a morality gauge. Because yeah. no matter what you're doing at any time, at any point in the year, he's judging your actions, right? I'm so, glad you brought this up. And you're, yes. you'll be rewarded if you do well. Exactly. And going back to what you were saying, yes, in Christianity, there's the quote, uh, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Ah. Yes. In, Sa- in Believing in Santa, yeah. Yes. Right. So, you know, this movie poses this, or continues the idea that there is a naughty list, and people on that list do not get presents. Walter is on the naughty list. That is said in the movie. So this, of course, raises the uncomfortable question that I think we all know is coming. Who gets presents in this universe? Is it just kids who are raised in Christian households who celebrate Christmas? What does Santa do for all the other kids who, I mean, the majority of people on the planet don't celebrate Christmas, right? Right. I mean, I yeah, I granted, like, America's... Europe, you know, uh, and other countries like that, we have Christmas and this idea. But, you know, there's a lot of other cultures out there that don't celebrate Christmas. Does Santa bring them toys? There's a lot of people in the U.S. that don't either. Yeah. Are you telling me America isn't the whole world? I I am telling you that. I know it might be shocking. (laughs) Well, you you know. As an American, I haven't seen a lot of evidence from my government saying otherwise. Our discussion is kind of leading me to other thoughts like, so if Santa is this kind of God figure, he's almost like a practice God for children. Yeah, you got it. And an easy thing for children to grasp if they're Christian to then understand their their Christian God a little bit better. So for Christian households that celebrate Christmas, because not all Christian households celebrate Christmas, mm-hmm. and that perpetuate this Santa belief, do they have issues with their children questioning their Christian faith once they find out that Santa isn't real? And follow-up question, what about the non-Christian families that do celebrate Christmas? Do they get presents from Santa? <laughs> Hey, all, you know, Santa says, hypothetically, if you're nice, you get presents. So the only That's... the only requisite is being nice. But I think you have to believe in him, too, yes. right? I imagine people who are like, you know, Christmas haters because they don't like the Christian culture. And then they get a gift from Santa and they're like, damn him. Why does he keep doing this? We don't want your handouts, old man. Yeah, this there's this all these different versions of Christmas because yeah, some people that aren't Christian will be celebrating Christmas too. I think that is part of like the Christmas attitude though. It's supposed to be like 
even though people don't like always agree with you or like even though they're not always kind or receptive to you being nice to them and generous is still something you're supposed to do like buddy yeah in this movie those uh, are christian ideals yes a lot of people are not kind to buddy right off the bat and through his persistent kindness, he changes most hearts to become very friendly with him. Yeah. Right? And he learned that from Santa. So. If Santa is like the Christian God, what are the elves? Are they angels? I guess so, yeah. I don't know Autonomous if the Autonomous laborers. I don't know if it extends that Yeah, far. I was going to say, I don't know if the metaphor works that perfectly. Well, I, I. Yeah. I would like to hear what you say. It could just be... Well, we know that Christmas is not just seated in Christianity, but also has its Norse ties. Yeah, to Yule. Yeah. Uh, You guys know, of course, that Santa, in in some aspects, pulls inspiration from Odin, the Norse king of the gods. Right, And if you don't believe in Odin, shit gets crazy. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, you know, in Norse mythology, the elves or the Svart elves are the tinkerers for the gods and give them many, like, magical items, right? And so that can kind of be seen as, like, a you know, the ancestor to the Christmas mythology, Whereas the Svart Elves, the Elves, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And they make things, that's all they do. And that's what the Svart Elves are known for in Norse mythology as well. Yeah, I think you're right. It probably has the seed, uh, the folkloric seed or mythological seed with the, the Norse myths. And, and, and a lot of our traditions around the holidays in terms of Christmas traditions, like you said, they are based in... Yule. And we're actually recording this on the winter solstice, which is uh, one of the 12 days of Yule. But for so for Asatruar, this might be one of the 12 days of Yule. Uh, But for Wiccans, this is Yule, the 21st. Wiccans also celebrate the 21st as Yule. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of neo-pagan sects that um, celebrate, you know, different holidays and emphasize different important religious days or holy days and everything. But, you know, the the winter solstice is kind of broadly applicable to not just one group or another. Right. And there's mm. so many more that we haven't mentioned here either. But yes. it, it is an important time, the winter solstice in particular, uh, to many traditions. And, of course, I mean, anthropologically, we can pretty much come to the conclusion that the timing of Christmas is specifically to connect the holiday to the winter solstice, a time that would have been important to the Europeans who were being educated about Christianity, let's say, in the Middle Ages and such. And and, um, converted. Yeah, so the syncretism of being like, well, you've got this important time of Yule. Let me tell you a little bit about this idea about Christmas I've been cooking up. Yeah. Yeah, if you want a funny time of the Christians converting the Vikings, it's worth looking into. It's a pretty, it's kind of, 
interesting and I think a little humorous the way that they convinced each other of their religions. Humorous until the swords came out. Yeah. That sounds like the Middle Ages. Yeah. I mean, everyone had a sword in the Middle Ages. That was just it's how you It's kind of like Americans. Every American has their gun. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Facts we know about Americans. Everyone has a gun. We Every one of us loves barbecue. Every single American loves barbecue. <laughs> so, guys, this might seem like we're taking a step back, but I actually am realizing that we haven't talked at all about the character of Jovi, who I think is really important to this film. And I am would not be comfortable finishing this conversation without bringing her character into it, because I think she's an important piece to the puzzle of this movie. Sure. Yeah, yes. I think you have a good point. So Jovi is Zoe Deschanel's character. She is a woman who works at the department store that Buddy becomes not really employed at, but does a lot of work for her. I guess he ends up doing some free labor there. Um, and she has this interesting relationship with Christmas. And I think it's actually a really interesting character because through the language of this film, we know a few things about her. She seems to really enjoy Christmas and the holiday season, but she is also financially incredibly poor. Uh, we know that she's had her hot water turned off at her apartment. She's working kind of a tough job at this department store. That, thankless job. Yeah, very thankless job. So she's coded as very lower class. She's eating ramen. So we know that she's got, you know, she must be like either a college student or dirt poor. Yeah. Um, But she also develops this bond with Buddy because he comes in, meets her, and she does not believe that anybody can have his enthusiasm for anything because she is jaded and cynical, right? Because the world has been, yeah. I, assuming this is the character background, the world has been hard on her, therefore she is jaded and cynical. Nobody could possibly be as fun-loving and joyous as Buddy. So she calls him out and is like, are you making fun of me? Or like when she meets him, he's like, no, I love Christmas. This is the best time of year. Like, why would I be sarcastic about anything? And she says that after he's complimenting her and she thinks he's making fun of her. That's how jaded she has become as a character. It's true. We do kind of see their manager kind of pushing her around and not really listening to her feedback about her own job like she she's knowledgeable about how to do her job it seems like she's been doing it for a while and the manager kind of pushes her around and cuts her off when she's trying to give advice so for someone to like genuinely care about her in a very positive way it seems like a rare occurrence in her life like you're mentioning mm-hmm. so i'm really glad that they introduced a character uh, that represents the more clear aspects of class commentary into this film. I wouldn't have even accepted this movie as a fantasy movie were there not this important class consciousness that the film is aware that people who are of the poorer classes are mistreated so often and kind of expected to be happy little productive people who should just be thankful for having work 
But that's not the case. She can't even hold a job and pay her bills because the system is so unfair. New York City rent is so high. She probably has a, you know, slumlord landlord who's taking advantage of her. Right. She ostensibly has a, a full-time job and it's not, she doesn't make enough money to make ends meet or to make a living. Yeah. And she's busting her ass for the holidays, like doing this job that's really important. Like we're seeing essential work that she's doing of keeping this store running. And I think she mentioned something about like overtime or just working long hours. And like the sad thing is she kind of takes pride in her job, right? She's like decorating. She actually loves Christmas, but she's been so ground down by the culture of work around her that she has lost her ability to really see joy. But she so much loves Christmas that she's singing a Christmas song in the shower. Yeah, it's true. So she does have Christmas spirit, but she's also been beaten down by the system. I love when the writers work in a good character like this to critique the system in a way that will still be like that, you know, that people can dig into and, and find through a deeper analysis. Yes. It gives uh, the story more depth as well and makes it more relatable because so many people do go through this. I I wonder if this is another week. Just this discussion of this character is making me think of this. <laughs> that we don't need an evil, stupid, or misunderstood because the antagonist is, again, capitalism, and it's evil. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, I, I kind of feel like that was uh, implicit in what we were saying, and I'm just making it explicit now. <laughs> yeah, and we don't really have a classic villain in this. I mean, Not Walter, really. I guess, kind of, sort of, is set up that way in the beginning, but... Like, we, we know, like, we understand where he's coming from. He's from this culture of overworking yeah. that he's kind of internalized. And we really pity him for, you know, almost rejecting Buddy. Like, his life would have been sad without Buddy. His life was sad before Buddy, which is actually weird because he has a pretty great family. I mean, his relationship with Michael is bad, but... Like, his wife is incredible. It seems like he was maybe depressed. And yeah. meeting Buddy and seeing what Buddy held dear and what he focused on helped him rethink what was important in his life. And sometimes, you know, the, the people in our lives can do that for us. Yeah, imagine the missed opportunity that he would have had if he had actually sent Buddy away. That's the darkest timeline. Exactly. Well, guys, we've said a lot about this movie already. I think it's probably time to head to the smithy. Welcome to the smithy, where we forge a rating for this film after we each share an epic moment or feature from the movie. So, Chelsea... Would you like to go first and tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating between one and ten candy canes? Sure. My epic moment is at the end when Walter has realized that his priorities have been all wrong and he goes to reconnect with Buddy and apologize to him. Buddy tries to apologize to 
Walter first to say he's sorry for ruining the meeting he was in. And Walter cuts him off and says, nobody, I need you to listen to me. I'm sorry. You're an important person in my life, and I love you and care about you, and I shouldn't have treated you the way I treated you. That was terrible, and I, I want you in my life, and I love you. And then Buddy just smiles and hugs him really big and gets Walter to hug him back and just says, I love you too, Dad. And it's just a great moment. Oh, Yeah, it's awesome. I loved seeing a character who is okay apologizing to somebody else. And I feel like it's a really... That's one of the most important lessons of this movie. Great point. And something that a lot of people could learn from. It's It doesn't diminish you to apologize to somebody else. It can actually heal a relationship or strengthen it as like they showed it um, having that effect in this movie and an apology goes a long way so that was a really great moment and nice. you don't see it a lot in movies and and you can really feel like a genuine need to make amends from Walter and that was that was really well acted too mm -hmm. that was epic I want to give this movie a high rating. I'm going to say 8 out of 10 candy canes. I feel like even though there are the pro-capitalism consumerist messages, there are so many other good messages that counterbalance it. I feel like it's a winner all around. And it's actually a really great Christmas movie. It's entertaining as hell, too. It's a lot of fun. To yeah, watch. a lot of times comedies don't hold up very well. I I was laughing pretty thoroughly. This throughout one most really of this holds up well, in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah, eight out of ten. I think it's because the comedy is not mean spirited. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, it's Christmas spirited. <laughs> All right, Jack. How about your epic moment or feature, and then your rating from one to ten candy canes? Yes. Yeah, Charles, that was a really great, great takeaway moment. Great heartwarming moment. My epic moment is a, a callback to an earlier scene, right? The earlier scene is when Buddy is needing to get tucked into bed, right? Yeah. He's asking his dad to tuck him into bed. And uh, he reluctantly does, begrudgingly, right? He tucks him in on one side, and when he reaches to tuck Buddy in on the far side, Buddy goes, tickle fight, tickle fight, and starts assaulting his body with his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Walter hates that. It makes him really angry, right? But he tempers and, uh, it, too. He's just like, don't do that. Stop. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't yell at him. No, he doesn't. He's just very, he didn't like it, right? <laughs> Later in the film... Buddy is working in the mail room of the Empire State Building, and there's a, a convict on work leave <laughs> working with Buddy, and unknowingly, Buddy gets drunk with the guy, and they're sitting <laughs> together, shooting the shit, bonding, right? Yeah. They're, they're quick friends. They're talking to, you know, Buddy is being really encouraging to this guy who thinks he's down on his luck, right? Yeah. They're quick friends. They really like each other. They're being uplifting. And then they're lying on this mail. The, the 
the prisoner. He has his belly exposed and Buddy shouts, tickle fight. And he starts tickling the guy really aggressively. And the guy just bursts out laughing. And he starts, I think he starts tickling Buddy back. Yeah, he does. He's just, he's so into it. um, That was, I was like, oh, Buddy is magical. Yeah. (laughs) He's done it. Just this guy's having a great time with him and then he accepts the tickle fight. It's so funny. Yeah, they're both very comfortable with their expression of affection. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that guy's going places. He's got a lot of great ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, for this movie, like we said, it came out in 2003. It's 17 years old. Uh... Most of the classic Christmas movies, I feel like, are from kind of a while back, like that our parents were really into, Mm -hmm. pretty much. But this kind of became a classic Christmas movie, like, right away. I think a lot of people watch this as an annual film. And it does everything it's trying to do really well and very clearly. I agree wholeheartedly. Right. As an art piece, I think it is very successful to itself and, like, as a genre-defining film. A lot of the Netflix movies we talked about, I feel, were at least slightly inspired by this, definitely. And, uh... I'm actually going to give this one a 10 out of 10. Wow. The rarest unicorn. (laughs) Right. Because, uh... I think. I'm probably not. The last candy cane, the 10th one, is a rainbow candy cane. Yes, it is. It's just... It is what it is, and it's what it's supposed to be, you know? So, there you go. How about you, Jamie? What is your epic moment and or feature and also your rating out of 10 candy canes? I, I just want to clarify. These are candy canes that have been like sucked on until they're sharpened to a, a point like a sword or a knife. Okay. Because it's the forge and yeah. normally we rate out of swords. Yeah. Or other types yes. of weapons. <laughs> yeah. When I was in surgery and my scalpel was gift wrapped, when I opened it, It wasn't even a scalpel. It was just a candy cane that was sucked to be sharp. (laughs) I can't use that. That's not sterilized. Hey, you can make those things pretty sharp. It's true. So my epic moment slash feature is the Central Park security, who we learned from the newscaster are considered too gung-ho for uh, usual security purposes apparently there was a simon and garfunkel concert that they really roughed up this is this crazy moment in the end of the movie where santa's in central park and these four horsemen like figures appear to hunt down santa for some crazy reason i don't understand exactly why but they're like chasing santa's sleigh and trying to hunt him down and we find out that the reason they are so aggro is that they've been on the naughty list for years and apparently that has driven them to madness and police brutality yeah they are insane it is wild they are like i said they are framed like the four horsemen of the fucking apocalypse they are you can't take Santa to prison. Oh, you're not going to make it to prison. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I, it is such a wild, 
divergent moment that I was just, I, it had me busting up because it was so left as field. As far as I can remember, I've never seen anything like that in any other Christmas movie. <laughs> it probably has a precedent just in like wild left turns in like comedies of the early 2000s. Maybe. I mean, I feel like Anchorman has some similar like out of nowhere stuff like at the end like it, it's always hard to wrap up a comedy right like yeah. coming out with a, a nice tidy bow to a movie that has been not conflict free but definitely like conflict light up to that point you got to have like an action sequence right yeah i guess so. so that's like the four horsemen of central park chasing santa sleigh um <laughs> so that being said um I was really happy with this movie. I was really happy that the comedy held up well, that it didn't fall back on a bunch of tired tropes or anything. I got to give the credit to John Favreau. The guy generally makes really good stuff. The first Iron Man movie, The Mandalorian now, like great stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll give him some credit here. He can make a good movie slash series. I am going to give this movie, I think 8 out of 10 is a solid rating. It's not like my favorite, favorite movie of all time or even my favorite holiday movie. I don't even think it's my favorite holiday fantasy movie, but I really, really enjoy it. I think The Night Before, Before Christmas might be my favorite holiday movie, holiday fantasy movie, but that's neither here nor there. Or The Nightmare Before Christmas. Ooh. But uh, yeah, it's fun. It's well made. It has some good messaging for how people should be eight out of 10 candy canes. That's my final offer. A respectable rating. Agreed. And on that note, we'd like to thank you all for joining us for both our last Christmas themed episode of the year and our last episode of the year. This is coming out on uh, the 26th, the day after Christmas. And after that, we're going to be releasing our episodes in the new year. Yeah. That sounds accurate. <laughs> uh, we will be as happy as everybody else to see 2020 go away, but hopefully we were able to provide some fun and joy for you all uh, in this tough year of, you know, just just getting by through tough times, I'm going to say. Yeah, let us know what you think about this movie or our show. Uh, you can contact us on social media at Swords and Satire. Or if you're feeling old school, you could shoot us a email at swordsandsatire at gmail.com. And if you're feeling especially fanatic about our show, you can go support us on Patreon, where you'll get access to bonus episodes and content like behind the scenes, or be able to vote on some of our future films. Thanks for mentioning that. This episode was actually a patron requested uh, or patron voted episode from our list of possible christmas themed fantasy movies that's right and so if you are feeling like you can give back in that way uh to the show you can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and that pretty much does it here for us for this episode and for this year but until next time hail, hail krampus, krampus.